And, and look, I think that, you know, the typical practice owner is not an entrepreneur and they're not typically very business savvy. Some are, and they're doing exceptionally well. This space has grown 10% compounded forever. And, and, you know, no disrespect, but almost anyone can do well in that sort of a setting, especially when supply is not meeting demand. On this episode of Inside Reproductive Health, I talked to Dr. Andrew Meekle. Dr. Andrew Meekle is the founder of the Fertility Partners. It's his third healthcare company, and they're now the biggest fertility network in Canada. Before I get into my conversation with Dr. Meekle, today's shout out goes to Dr. Dan Nayot because we talk about him. Dr. Nayot's been on the show, good friend of mine. Shout out to Dan. Hope I get a text from this. In my conversation today with Dr. Meikle, when I met him a year ago, I hadn't heard of him. I hadn't heard of his company. And now the Fertility Partners is the biggest fertility network in Canada. So we talk about what that's been like, about what it's like for practices to do due diligence, where they need to get their books in order, where he thinks there have been some cons in some of the private equity and public market money coming into the fertility field. And then we talk a lot about the specifics of how practices should value their groups and what they should do to invest for sale, including, but not limited to working with Fertility Bridge. What a no brainer. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Andrew, because I pushed him on some things he pushed back. I'll let you decide. I think it was a really fruitful conversation. Here is Dr. Andrew Meekle. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Meikle, Andrew, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks a lot, Griffin. Great to be here. I'm a fan. I can't wait to talk about the different ways that people can think about how they might sell their practice, how they'd value their practice. You've got a lot of tangible stuff for us to go over. I might throw a couple of philosophical hardballs in between here and there, but you've got a lot of tactical and tangible stuff. Before we do that, I'm curious, you're a, you, you're a dentist by trade. How did you end up here in the fertility space? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. Geez, I thought we had like 40 minutes to an hour. Um, I mean, yeah, this they, is part one. Me, and then the, other, <laughs> the other questions are going to be part two. Very, very, very quickly. Look, I, I knew that I wanted to be a healthcare provider from, you know, the, the age that people start asking you, what do you want to be in life? And it was, it was a doctor when I was a little kid. And I had an uncle who was a dentist who seemed to have more autonomy over physicians back in the day. So I followed his footsteps and, um, Never really questioned what I was going to do as maths and sciences all the way, graduated from dental school. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks that this is a business. I, I not only have to see patients and, and ex deliver excellence you know, in my technical skills, but I've got people to lead, I've got bills to pay. And I, I, it sounds you know, surprising, but you know, in medicine and dentistry, we get zero business and leadership training. 
fortunately for me, um, you know, with my background in sports, I, leadership came naturally to me, and I quickly realized that I needed to create a team, a team that functioned and, and functioned synergistically at the highest level so that we could deliver, you know, the best care to our patients. And it quickly dawned on me in the first five years of practice that not everyone had that approach. There was a lot of burnout in the space. Um, a lot of uh, dentists were finding it increasingly challenging to run these little businesses. And so um, just really by happenstance, I bought my first practice and the dentist stayed on and he said he'd stay for six months. And once I started running, leading the practice, it grew 30% in the first year with just some simple energy and leadership and uh, systems and processes. He asked to stick around and stayed for five years and told several of his classmates, hey, you know, this guy Mikkel can run your practice. You can just come and go and, you know, kibitz with the team. And, and it really kind of took off from there. I, I bootstrapped about 20 clinics um, while I was practicing dentistry. And at any given time, I, I was operating 10 clinics. And realized that there was an opportunity here once, once I'd spent enough time in it to, to scale the business and uh, ended up doing so. So your first acquisition was as an individual. You didn't have a firm behind you? Oh, correct. Yeah, my first 20 were bootstrapping. So the, tw the, 20, the other 20 that you opened, were they all de novo? Were they all acquisition? Was it a mix of, of the two? It was, a, it was a mix. It was a mix, but mostly acquisition. I, I learned pretty quickly that cash flow is important. Um, I wouldn't say more important than your grandmother, but it's pretty damn important. So uh, it was a, it was fewer de novos and more acquisitions. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. What's the expression? Cash isn't uh, isn't the number one most important thing, but it's a close second behind oxygen. And uh, <laughs> so right. you you didn't have a firm behind you. Did you have any other high net worth individuals? It was it just your your own bankroll plus some commercial loans. Well, it was, it was just me and a ton of debt. And um, in 2008, when the credit crisis hit, the banks completely shut down. I realized I, I, I needed some more tools. So I went back to school and did an MBA. And uh, in my MBA, I got a ton of support from the profs who said, you know, you're, you're really under something here. This is an underserved market. There's a need. It's growing in complexity. It's unconsolidated, you know. Um, so my thesis coming out of business school and coming out of the recession was to grow and scale a business that essentially was a B2B business providing back office services to dental clinics. And we also developed a model whereby we acquired 100% of the clinic, but gave back the dentists uh, typically 20% of the equity in their business um, in parent company shares. We launched that business in 2011. And by 2018, we'd acquired 300 clinics across the country in every province in Canada. We had about 800 million of revenue, 22% EBITDA margins, and we sold it uh, for 1.7 billion in March of 2018. What you're describing is, is extraordinarily entrepreneurial. The way you described at least your first colleague whose practice you took over was was someone that really wasn't an entrepreneur that preferred this. And I remember being on a, a ride with you and, and some others. I've talked about it a couple of times on, on the podcast, but on a long ride with you to Aspen, Colorado, that was way too long. And I remember you said, <laughs> you were talking about what an entrepreneur is and you, you were, you had mentioned that the, and so if I'm paraphrasing, that's why I'm saying it now. So you can correct me, but you were talking about how widely used it is now. And the person that owns a barbershop is not a, entrepreneur. 
the person I, I don't owns, think so. The person that owns 20 on barbershops is an entrepreneur. So you, can you talk yeah. about what your philosophical definition is? Sure. I, I think, uh, look, unless you, you know, sell the farm or burn the ship as the Vikings used to, I, I don't think you're, you're laying it on the line and you're not, you're not leveraging the scale. You're not scaling that individual business. So I think until you can almost take yourself out of the equation and replicate the model over and over and, and become financially successful uh, with, ri- with capital at risk, I don't think you're an entrepreneur. I think that's a really strong definition. In 2018, I got a lot of traction and still one of our most read articles about, I made a philosophical argument that those that started fertility practices in the mid nineties were really inheriting a general practice model established in the mid 20th century, if not earlier. And now they're competing against people who are capital backed entrepreneurial ventures. And it's, it's like, you know, we're here to play uh, tackle football, but we just showed up to play tag football. You guys can't tackle. No, they are tackling. That's the game that's being played. Now you're just still playing tag football. Everyone else is playing tackle. And so I've made the argument that I don't think many people are entrepreneurs. I've had uh, Dr. Arredondo on the show to argue the opposite. Uh, I still really firmly, I think he makes great points and I encourage people to listen to that, those episodes. I still strongly feel that many uh, practice owners are not entrepreneurs. They found themselves in this position. And some of the people that are really rising to the top, they are REIs, but they are also entrepreneurs. I deal with them and I can tell the difference between them and some of our other prospects. And and so now we we are in this place where where there is a, a a big difference. And what do you think the prospect is for for those folks that aren't exactly sure where they fall on the spectrum? Yeah, you know it's a fascinating debate going on in the space right now. And I I, I don't think you know you've got sort of David Sable on one end, and and I listen to his podcasts and other avenues through which he communicates. And I, I know Paco, he was at that conference and we remained in touch, um, didn't have a great experience, you know, from a private equity perspective. And he's, you know, pretty, pretty blunt about it. I think that, um, and then, and then you sort of roll in, you know, some data and that there's that HBS study on, you know, physicians as leaders, do they outperform capitalists, if you will? Um, and, and they do in a healthcare setting. So, uh, but that article also refers to them as accidental leaders. You know, they don't they don't teach it. Um, they they sort of come across it and perhaps hone hone that side of their uh, skill set over time. And and look, I think that you know the typical practice owner is not an entrepreneur, and they're not typically very business savvy. Some are, and they're doing exceptionally well. This space has grown ten percent compounded forever, and and you know no disrespect, but almost anyone can do well in that sort of a setting, especially when supply is not meeting demand. So everyone's doing well, um, almost everyone's doing well. I think there's another level. It's not just about revenue and EBITDA. You know, our mission, and you know, I'm a healthcare provider at heart, is to drive clinical outcomes, to use science, collaborate with stakeholders and our group to, to drive clinical outcomes to be more successful for our patients, and as well to improve, dramatically improve the patient experience, the patient journey. 
So it's pretty simple. All of our decisions are made, um, you know, based on those two things. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to professionalize some of the areas in the space. Um, when you look at, at management, for example, I think there are a lot of people doing a lot of great things, but it's, it's sort of doctor first, it's not patient first. So we're flipping this um, profession on its head and looking at the management and the operational efficiency and effectiveness of, of clinics. We're looking at uh, you know, lean processing from a patient perspective. We're, we're looking at um, sort of value innovation from a customer perspective. It's gotta be driven by, um, by the patient. We have to serve the patient. Um, and, and I think it's largely the other way today. So we, we have a completely different lens and I think most groups um, we're investing for the long term. Um, we can get into private equity if you want. I, I am now backed. We are now backed by private equity. You got to be careful who you choose, who you partner with. You got to be careful who you marry. You got to spend time. You got to do your diligence. You got to go on dates. Um, and you have to be um, ruthless in your due diligence because it is a life sentence. So um, yeah, I went away from your entrepreneurship question, but I think no, it's, it, oh. it's it's on point in the way we're going to get there because I want to talk about the dates and the due diligence. Now we're at the fork in the road, and I want to talk about the the fork in the road, which stems from that entrepreneur definition philosophical question because I do believe that it is a spectrum. I, on a zero, you have someone that will never work for anything beyond an hourly wage. And at 100, you have an Elon Musk that is going to get us to Mars when he's not even an astrophysicist. And Dr. Andrew Meikle is somewhere on the further end based on the behavior that you've described. I myself, uh, I, I do not consider myself a true entrepreneur yet. I'm somewhere lower on the, 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 the spectrum. Maybe I'm a 63, maybe I'm a 65, but I am certainly more entrepreneurial than I was. I'm building this business. I'm slower. I think the tendency of a true blue entrepreneur is to do things much faster, to be able to take much greater leaps. I need to learn by doing so I go slower, but I am becoming more entrepreneurial, leveraging systems, leveraging people, investing no more capital. And so I think there are people that are like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not Meikle because I certainly wasn't doing that when I was younger, but I, I'm starting to get the hang of it. And, and now I'm at this fork in the road. How should someone think about this if they're, if they're somewhere on the spectrum and they're like, well, you know what? I can go with the fertility partners or inception or the new, one of the new groups, or uh, I can keep doubling down on my entrepreneurial talents. How does someone think about that when they're at that fork in the road? I, there's a lot to unpack there. And you and I need to have beers and talk about you as an entrepreneur, because I think you've got a ton of potential and some different business lines here that you could enter into with your depth of knowledge, your leadership, the culture you've created and, and the, the, the true uh, friendly connections you've made in the space. But anyway, that's for another time. You're very, very close. I see it less as a fork in the road than as a chasm to be crossed. And you cross the chasm in one leap or you don't make it. That's the, to me an entre entrepreneur's mindset. So you gotta make a decision to go for it and then go for it. It's like, it's like the Jim Kelly hurry up offense. Right? There's going to be a lot of moving parts, man, but you, you, know, you, you, you can do it. You can stay on top of it. You can lead it. You can prioritize, um, and you can guide the team um, to success. I, I don't know how to turn a, a physician into an entrepreneur, per se. I think you have to have the fortitude for it. You have to be able to delegate tremendously because you need to see 
everything from 60,000 feet and not be too in the weeds. I think an absolutely critical element and some uh, something that I see as a weakness generally in the space is a lack of um, financial um, awareness, a lack, a lack of operating the business uh, with financial metrics. Um, people in the space seem to look at, at it in the rearview mirror rather than in real time. You know, our organization, we provide a full P&L every month by the eighth day of the next month. So our partners can see what they've done in their business and, and uh, how it relates to the strap plan that we've worked on them for going forward. Um, so I think, you know, we, we don't have enough time, but I, I you know, I, I mean, a start would be definitely start reading some, some books, <laughs> you know, um, there's a ton of great information on entrepreneurship out there. Gerber has a whole series, uh, uh, you know, those things are very helpful, but, but you really have to take yourself out of the day-to-day -day equation, be able to see it from 60,000 feet, have the best, most independent, you know, brightest people you can working for you, um, actually, you know, executing on things. And I think that's a big first step. I think the chasm analogy is pretty apt. We do something called the goal diagnostic. It's a $600 initial offer. And part of the reason why I do it is to see if people have made that leap, because if they're just coming to me to see like, oh, well, what else is out there? We're probably not the firm for them. But if they're coming to us saying, we want to be in these markets. We want to hire this many doctors. We, we want to increase our volumes by X percent. Then it's like, okay, now I can help you. And so I think th the way people make decisions comes down to where you've fallen on that side of, of the chasm because- Totally agree. I wouldn't have spent my last dollar to come to MRSI in 2015 if it wasn't to, you know, to rent a car and to get to Chicago right after moving back to-, to uh, the United States if I hadn't chosen this field. And so I think, you know, when I hear people say, we want to take, we want to take over the world. It's like, no, you wish that the world would come to you. <laughs> Taking over the world is, is a much different thing. And so now with you, we have the opportunity to talk a little bit about that financial literacy, business literacy that you've mentioned is missing in, in medical training in the academic setting. So if we start with timing and, and picking a partner, some of this dating stuff, what are some of the tenants that really belong in that due diligence? Well, I think, you know, being, being ready for due diligence or one thing. So that goes back to the numbers. You got to have your numbers in order. You got to have some sense of what your profitability is and, and uh, where your expenses are, what are your variable expenses, your fixed expenses, you know, the classic accounting and you don't have to learn it from scratch, um, you know, just get a great advisor and sit down with them and truly understand your business. I, I didn't have a lot of business training, as I said, was figuring it out. And just to your point now, probably took a little longer than it might have. But when I went to school, you know, the accounting prof said, listen to me in this semester and it will change your life. And I did. And it did <laughs> it completely transform my life. So You've got to be on top of the numbers, whether you're deciding to sell or to partner or, you know, to um, to to have an associate buy-in. Even a sequential buy-in requires um, a, a thorough understanding of the business and where the numbers are. Do you find that most people have that sufficiently ready, or do they? Do people need to hire a forensic accountant at times? What's the gamut? I think most of them do not have it ready. Uh, most of them are not um, not particularly buttoned down from that perspective. Some are certainly, and they've 
you know, the larger clinics who typically have, have more to spend have, have outsourced to perhaps some of the larger accounting firms um, or have a longstanding relationship with a boutique accountant. Um, and that can be a little quicker, but um, there's still a tremendous amount of unnecessary complexity in what I'm seeing and how they've structured their businesses and, and a lack of personal knowledge about their own business. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the most jaw-dropping things to us as we entered the space was that the typical marketing budget that we see, and this, this is, well, it kind of is a plug for you, but it didn't start out that way. 0.6% of revenue. I don't know what you're saying. I was just US. about to say it was half a percent of gross revenue. Yeah, it is staggering. Like it is far too little. Again, I think it's been this mindset of we've got a waiting list. We don't need to do anything, but you know what? You, you say it in your, um, in your commercials, competition is coming, Wall Street's coming, Europe's coming. Like you've got to always be winning patients or you're going to go backwards. So um, that's another thing we're very focused on is supporting our clinics. And um, I might as well say it here first, we're, we're coming to the US Griffin and we will be using your services um, later this year. We've, we've had inbound inquiries from the UK, from Europe, from the US, South America, we've been, you know, only seven months old, but we've been inundated, I think, because of our value proposition and our model. The next logical geographic move for us is the U.S., and uh, we'll be there by the end of this calendar year. Well, so now now there's another person coming in, but I think even if that, all of that weren't true, I think all, all of that all of that still isn't enough to put a fire under on many people's bellies now, but I do think that if you're using marketing correctly, you're just using it to invest back into the business at, at the very least. And so Absolutely. It, it's a way of, it, because otherwise you're, you're taking it out of your own pocket. And that's often why people don't invest in their business. And then it just becomes irrelevant or less competitive or less profitable over time. But if you generate more profit in the meantime, and you use some of that to invest in the longer term of the business, then you can keep the profit machine running. And so you're, you're looking at, at, at these books, many of the prospective clients that you're talking to, just prospective partners that you're talking to don't uh, have the books sufficiently in order. What's the delta between those that do and those that think they do? <laughs> um, I, I think most of them have a sense that they don't, to be honest. I, I, I think that they don't know their numbers. You ask them their EBITDA or their cash flow or you know, how much their staff wages are that they don't know. So I, I would say it's not a big Delta because they acknowledge as much. So when you're helping, when you're looking for a deal, what looks good to you? Are you looking for particular markets? Are you looking for length of time in a marketplace? Are you looking for a number of physicians? What, what looks good to a prospective buyer or partner? Glad you asked. So the, really the most important thing for us are quality care providers, bar none. And with that goes reputation. So I've spent, as I said, I left Dental Corp in 2018, uh, March of 2018, and we didn't launch this business until summer of 2020. I put together the team in the fall of 19 and we started planning, but I spent I went to Eshra in Vienna in the summer of 2018. I flew to Australia. I met all the corporate groups in December of 18, uh, sorry, 19. Uh, went to the Canadian conference before, well before I launched the business. And I spent an incredible amount of time meeting 
and earning the trust, developing relationships with the top clinics in the country. I would say I approached the four top clinics in the country and two of them said no. One was not right now, one was doubt it, and two others said yes. So um, it took me a year and a half to close on what I know are two of the best clinics in the country. So it's quality first. Not only is that just smart because you know we want to provide quality patient care and build a quality organization, but when you get any number of the top clinics in the country to sign on, people say, you know, holy shit, there must be something to this. And they pay attention. And I would say, you know, it was almost like an earthquake when we announced, when we passed our, our point of confidentiality, we're closing the deals and we announced that we were partnering with them. It really was like an earthquake in Canada. And we've grown very quickly. We have over 20% of the entire market share in Canada. I'm not sure if there's any one corporate group that has that in the US. Um, you know, we're, you know, per capita based on the size of our com- country, we're larger than Shady Grove, Boston IVF, and um, Inception, any, any of the groups down there. So um, it really propelled us to, to where we are today, seven months later. So you're looking for a couple of names, some, some quality when, when you are doing this. What should, what should the sellers or the, the now partner clinics be thinking about when they are doing this dating? So, you know, my opinion is that, and, and others have different, we talked about, you know, Paco and Sable and, you know, Michael Alper was on and I know they, they did a deal. There's, you know, my opinion, and I, I can't build a great business in three to five years. I, 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 don't want to, I, I don't want to exit in three to five years and I don't want the pressure of exiting then. So for me, and if I were a clinician, I look for somebody who has a long-term horizon, regardless of my personal horizon, because I'm going to care about my staff. I'm going to care about my patients. I'm going to care about my legacy. So I think a long-term time horizon, and then look closely at the track records of the people um, uh, you know, involved, uh, whether it's the, the CEO and the senior leadership team like myself, or the back, you know, the equity backers. You know, you look at Eugen, you know, unfortunately for them, their backers and MC Health got delisted. I'm not, I'm not, you know, telling tales out of school. It's public knowledge. You know, they got delisted from the London Stock Exchange. That would concern me personally if I was signing on to something like that. Um, there's fraudulent behavior there at, at the top level. Th- those are the really important um, tenets to look at. And then, and then obviously spending time with the individuals. You know, what are their values? Well, so I'm, th- I'm just thinking if I was playing devil's advocate, the kind of argument will, will, might be, well, these are publicly listed companies. So we know about their finances. We have public record for them. If you're talking about high net worth individuals and private equity firms, but especially individuals, what, what do we know about them? So again, private equity, you have to talk to other CEOs, um, successes, failures, current portfolio companies. Um, unfortunately, you know, many private equity companies, Griffin, still have that old playbook where they want to cut costs. And, and drive revenues. Uh, you know, healthcare companies are different. Doctors are different. I, I, the, the, whoever it is that's writing the check has to understand the doctor nuance. They have to respect the doctors. There's an art and science to this um, profession, this industry, if you will. It's not widgets. It's not manufacturing. It's not, you know, it's highly specialized and they need the tools and equipment that they need to provide the best care. There has to be an understanding of that. So I think, look at the track record. I'm also not a fan of the, the 5149 private equity playbook, whereby 
PE buys 51% at whatever, seven, eight multiple. And then they say, okay, you hold on to 49% at the clinic level. And we'll talk about that later. So they're making the arbitrage on the, you know, collective, uh, you know, aggregation of the group and, and the doctors are not. Our model is completely different. We invite our doctors to have um, equity at the parent company level, same equity I have, the same equity our private equity uh, partners have. And so they're also participating in the arbitrage. We buy 100% and they can take back, you know, as much equity as they want in the shares. It's up to them. It's up to their, you know, their risk profile. So we feel like it's a true partnership. Our model, we are partnering with the doctors. It aligns us on what's best for the clinic, what's best for patients, and what's best for the organization. Well, I thought we might talk about it later in the show because it is a philosophical thing that I've been exploring and, and reflecting on with regard to private equity, especially in REI medicine. To be fair, you're going to get a harder question than other people who've been on your position have been on the show is because I've thought about it more recently. And then I think, well, the next guy's going to get this question. That next guy is you. So not fair that other people didn't get it. You're getting it now. And I'm not afraid. Well, the way I'm looking at it, Andrew, is I hear people all the time say, we're not going to tell the doctors what to do. The, you know, the doctors run the, the clinic. We're not going to tell them how to run their business. And I've just been thinking, Andrew, I think that's bullshit. And the reason I think it's bullshit is because if all of my, let's just pretend my clients were those that I was buying. And so we're a business development consultancy and a marketing firm. We don't own equity in any, in any clinic. And almost all of our clients, though not all, almost all of them are independent. And I just think, okay, let's pretend you were all under the Fertility Bridge network. And I know that this doctor spends a half hour on new, with new patients, and this one does an hour. And this one that's doing a half hour, he says that it's better because all he's giving his patients are what they're going to do in that in the next testing, and they'll talk about the rest in the follow-up. He's not talking to them about everything, while the doctor that does it for an hour is talking about everything. And I know that some of my docs don't do any ultrasounds, and some of them do all of their own ultrasounds. And, and some say, you know, a tech is good. I just pop in and say hello. Other people say, no, I want to be there with my patients when they're doing their ultrasound. So if I owned all of them though, and I can see as a marketer, man, I'm getting all these people, their goals so fast. The bottleneck is these guys. Guess what? The guy that says that everybody should have an ultrasound tech and the guy that says that new patient consult should be 30 minutes. He or she is now the chief medical officer and you all are doing what he or she says. So I just, I don't buy that business outcomes don't overlap with clinical ops. And I'm interested in, in your, your take on that nuance. Totally, totally get it. And I've been asked this question a lot. You know, we bought a lot of dental practices and you have to, the reason our model is so successful and it was in dentistry is that it is philosophical, contractual, and it's even legal. We cannot get involved in clinical practice. We're not, we're not qualified to. We have no business in there. We, we do not get involved in clinical practice 100%. I can give you 100 names right now, go back 10 years, and, and they'll tell you that. I, I won't do it um, because, A, I'll never do another deal, and, B, I, that's, that was my promise to you. We're not going to do it. We talk to the, these potential partners before they sign on the line about areas of their clinic they think they can improve. So call it 
efficiency, effectiveness. You know, most clinics know they're not efficient. They know they're wasting time. They know they're wasting effort. So we say, okay, well, let's work together and, and talk about how we can improve that, but we will not impose anything on you. We will not drop a manager in there. You have complete autonomy over hiring, firing, clinical processes, and, and operating autonomy, but they want help. That's part of the reason they're joining us. So we map out, like, like I said, we're using Lean. Did I mention this earlier in the podcast? Please go into more detail. If you did, you just... Yeah, so, so the, 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 the manufacturing... Um, process that came out of Toyota and Japan in the 70s, you know, lean um, processing is an engineering exercise um, that effectively looks at things from the customer perspective, but it's a, it's a process of improvement by removing waste and, you know, reducing variation, for example. So we're using some of these um, lean tools to um, drive efficiency in, in clinics. So we're doing a couple of de novos right now. And we're engaging with staff members, patients, engineers, construction designers who are, are versed in lean. And we're taking the, the patient perspective. How does the patient want to move through the clinic? It's always been doctor first. You know, men don't want to walk down the hall with a sample, for example. I mean, that's obvious. But, you know, why are patients lined up at the door at seven in the morning? It's not best for patients. So, you know, we're looking at um, process optimization, which they are very excited. I can tell you the energy with our partners is, is unbelievable. I get calls and texts all throughout the week. Um, they're energized to change this, as you said, this inherited family practice model that's 40 years old. So um, that's an example. You notice I haven't said anything about clinical. We don't get involved at all in clinical medicine, but operations, I'm um, bringing technology. Something like engaged MD, a lot of clinics aren't using that. Um, genetic testing, here's the data. Would you like to do genetic testing? We bought a 20% interest in sequence 46 in California. We've got incredible pricing. You know that if you use PTTA, you're going to improve your outcomes. Like it's up to you, but here it is. And guess what? Your patients are gonna pay less than if you're buying it from Cooper or iGenomics. Um, so it's, it's about, showing them opportunities to serve their patients better and they get to choose. We will not impose anything on the clinics. Then what is somebody like, a, what, what is a chief medical officer for a, a group do then? In, in your case, what's that, what's that guy Dan Nayat doing for, for <laughs> fertility partners if there's no, if there's no clin, clinical obligations or best practices might be a, a, a loose term of putting it, but what's that role then? Okay, fantastic. Um, look, I, I, I'm glad you asked because I am incredibly proud of our senior leadership team. You mentioned Dr. Al Yuspi, who is basically the steptoe in Edwards of Canada, if you know that reference, right? They were the first uh, doctors in the UK to, to create Louise Brown. Um, so that's, that's Al. He is incredibly well regarded and respected, you know, closing in on 100 publications over his career, started you know, several programs in Canada who believes in our value proposition, believes that clinics should come together and collaborate on sharing SOPs, not forcing them on people, but think, look, here's what works for us. You know, the old CCRM advantage is gone now. It's commoditized. Everyone has the same opportunity in the lab, same opportunity to buy technology. So it's, it's then about how you go about it. And so we brought on Al um, very early, who is a huge supporter. We've got Dan Nayot, as you said, who, so we've got 
couple different generations, frankly. You know, Dan is a founder of Future Fertility, and we're interested in doing some R&D with him on, uh, on egg identification. And um, he's also one of the most futuristic or forward-looking REIs I've ever met. And we are looking at the future. We've got a 10-year plan, blue sky, uh, you know, committee. So we, we want to help to chart the course in, in this space. Um, we've also got an incredible scientific director who's, um, who's accredited in the US, you know, pathology and bioanalysis labs who will do um, due diligence for us on labs. We've got a number of folks from different industries, telecom, also healthcare, hospital care, um, engineering. And we're, we're, you know, so we've got, we've got the medical expertise. Um, we're putting together advisory boards led by those individuals. Um, we've just form, uh, formed our R&D advisory with as the who's who of researchers in, in Canada. Um, they're getting ready to launch a commercial product that will give the ERA test, ERA test, a run for its money with significantly more genetic markers. We will we will advise and collaborate, but we will not tell people what to do. I, I think I think there's not enough collaboration going going on in the space. And T.J. Farnsworth said it on your podcast. Um, it's not a platitude for us. Like we're we're doing it. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only 597 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. So you, you've talked a lot about what networks can do to support clinics in reaching their goals, how clinics can maintain their culture and the importance of autonomy. I want to talk a little bit more about what clinics can do to get uh, uh, ready for due diligence, because one of the things that you had mentioned was uh, about books being in order, but you, I think previously you'd also mentioned contracts and at least an email you'd, you'd talked about that. And maybe there's some, is there some specifics we can give to people that they might not know? And one I'm thinking of is it's often helpful to have assignment clauses, isn't it? Let's say if, if someone has a revenue generating stream that with uh, another entity that they have an assignment clause in that contract so that if they sell that contract goes to the buyer, what are, what are those other, what are, what are some of those examples 
that people should think about in getting ready for due diligence? Yeah, you know, that that's um, more specific to the US. I, 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 I don't know enough about that. We're just starting to ramp up our, our knowledge of, of the US. Uh, you know, in Canada, over 90% of, of fertility services are pay are private pay. And most of that is cash pay. So insurance is, is really lagging here. There's a little bit of government support. So um, I can't really comment on that. Your question specifically is what else, what other things should people look for when contemplating a sale? Yeah, and one thing I'd love to know is how do, how do I value my practice? Uh, I think that's one thing that you know people are asking each other at, at the bar at ASRM, but um, maybe don't have a lot of guidance on. And um, they might know a consultant, they might, have, they might have an MBA themselves, but uh, I think that's good wisdom that, that people might be able to benefit from. How do I value my practice? Yeah, no, no problem. I think, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward today. Um, you know, it, it's pretty much a multiple of EBITDA. So cash flow really determines the value of the business. Low cash flowing business will not command the multiples that a high cash flowing business will. And I'll give you those numbers and give or take, you know, the state of your equipment, obviously 15 year old equipment, you're gonna be on the lower end of, of the multiple and, and state of the art brand new is gonna be in the upper end. So there's pluses and minuses. I would say there are other intangibles as well. If it's a solo practitioner, do they have a succession plan? Fertility bridge, like are you winning patients? Is, is this practice growing or, or is it in decline? There are a number of factors that got in, go into it, but the largest driver of that. So again, you know, if you're contemplating a sale, don't slow down. In fact, invest in your business, keep it growing. Going back more specifically to your point, how do you value the business? There are many intangibles um, that can tip the scales uh, in your favor. The largest driver will be EBITDA. So anything around a million or less, you know, could command sort of a five to six multiple of EBITDA today. Um, anything in the $3 million range, I would be, again, depending on the intangibles, could be six to seven, seven and a half, five million, five, six million of EBITDA could be an eight multiple. And anything that's a group or a network, again, with platform, real synergies, a real business um, could command a multiple of, you know, anything that's sort of eight, nine, 10 million could command a nine or even 10 multiple, depending on how buttoned down it is. That, that's the range. That's the market. I want to pick apart something you said, or, or, or maybe just explore it, which was, um, you said, keep investing in your business. And maybe that's just, uh, you know, a plug to make Fertility Bridge clients happy. Uh, and, and if so, I appreciate it. But, but I often find that uh, it's the people that aren't, that, that are looking to sell within the next, you know, year, let's say, they're often the ones that aren't super interested in Fertility Bridge. And I think that for them, they would benefit from most of the stuff on the later phases of the patient journey because maybe they're not doing stuff for five years from now, but there's a lot of stuff they could be doing in the next three to six months to increase their, their revenue and their profit. Totally. And, you're you're and, absolutely right. I, I, hate, I, I just want to jump in and say that that is what you've just said is so valuable because if you and I were to buy a business, do you want it to be growing or stagnating? I mean, I mean it's, it's a no brainer. They're going to get more value at the end of that and they don't have to do it themselves. They can outsource it. I'm a big fan of outsourcing. So bring in the expertise, show to your potential buyer that you are 
you know, preparing for a sell and you want to hand it off in good shape. And, and look, I, I think there are very few that want to sell and just stop. So you want the momentum to carry into um, your new business. And if you have an arrangement post-sale, it's going to accrue to you anyway if there's some sort of um, revenue stream or profit share post-sale. So it, it's just good business. It's funny because I think I had the same conversation with someone that ended up going with you all. And, <laughs> really? and if, if only if only I had this soundbite to play for them at the time, well, we, won't, <laughs> we certainly won't talk about that. But uh, I think, I think that's what, that's what I've always looked at because I look at what I would be doing if I were selling my own business or, or if I were buying one, same way you'd look at if you were buying commercial real estate, you'd want to see more, right. more income coming in. Are um, your contracts in order, right? Do you have your staff under contract that adds value to a sale? Uh, there, there are just many things. Have your finances in order, financials in order, legible. All of these things make the business more valuable. So um, it's worth the effort. Do partnership dynamics ever come into play with this, Andrew, either in evaluation or just the vetting of the sale? Like oftentimes people might be coming to you because they're thinking, I I can't deal with Dr. Smith anymore. And let's just each sell 25% or, or whatever. And then it's, Meikle's problem is fertility partners problem. And so does this come into play with either how it's valued or, or how you're vetting with how the current partnership works with each other? That's an interesting question. And, and one that I haven't encountered in this business, it is, has been surprising me. So we've had one of our clinics that we acquired had 11 partners and they needed consensus. They needed unanim- to unanimously decide to go ahead and that was challenging. I mean, there were a lot of meetings, a lot of questions to be answered. Everyone has their own particular view on things, their own advisors, their own financial advisors, their partners in life. So it, it you know, more partners is more complex, but um, I haven't encountered that where we've had a, a chasm or a schism in the partnership um, and had to deal with that. And remember, ours is a partnership. It's not, a, our, our docs aren't selling and going, you know, to Florida. They are staying on. A minimum of five years. If there are enough partners in the group and one wants to retire, then fine, we'll figure it out. But ours is an ongoing relationship. I, I think if people are wanting to to step out or blow up a partnership, they won't be approaching us. What about the younger docs? This wasn't a question that I had planned on asking you, but hearing you talk and having you here, I want to ask it. The same meeting that you and I were, there was one person that had a counter opinion and I've invited this person on and doesn't feel that they have enough to talk about it for a show. But one thing that is often said is, well, this mostly benefits the older docs who are within five years of retirement and the younger docs then don't have any equity to build of their own. This person had made a counterpoint of, well, you could have even more because you have the PE firm, you've got you've got some, you're growing it, and then you're selling with them when they sell five years down the road. I don't know enough about that. And so I'm really curious about your take is what do younger REIs have to benefit in all of this? It's, that, that, it's an interesting point and we come across it quite often. I think we've solved for that in a couple of ways. I, I think that younger people, and you hate to generalize, typically don't want to carry as much debt. So I'll call them, you know, maybe millennials, right? New grads in their 30s 
We've been in school a long time. They're also time probably there. coming out with a lot more debt than that previous generation did. So they're, between, you know, between undergrad, many of them went to affluent private schools and then medical school. And then they earned, you know, an average of what, 60 grand a year between residency and fellowship, you know, so they're, yeah. com- so they never made any real money. Now they got a mortgage. They've got, uh, you know, they, they, many of them have children at this point. They probably have between a quarter, you know, a quarter million dollars of debt on average, I would guess. So I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm thinking that probably is a lot more debt than it was in the early 90s. Right. And you're absolutely right. And that plays into it. There's also that millennial mindset where I think they want more balance in their lives than than my generation. You know, it was nothing to work six, seven days a week back when I was that age, but people today want to go rock climbing and whatever they want to do, yoga and stuff. And that's fine. And it's probably wiser. Um, so I don't think that they're prepared very early on in their career to, again, take on more debt and take on the responsibility. There's a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, running these clinics, um, as you know. So I think that I think the mindset of young people today works in, in our favor in this model. Now, let's let's step that forward 10 years, whereby you've got docs in their 40s who are still young. They're the ones who are saying, hmm, I've got 20 years left, like, does it make sense for me to quote unquote sell now? Well, we, I, I can run models for these people on a tax effective basis with uh, our conservative uh, projections on how our shares will grow in value that they'll be better off doing a deal with us and they'll be supported with a sophist- by a sophisticated business organization. So when it comes to you know, the financial outcome, they will be better with us, better off with us, and they'll continue to have the autonomy of running their practice. And um, as the older partners uh, retire, we'll help them backfill with other docs and, and support them in the day to day. So I think it's a compelling proposition. They're, it's not for everyone. And we find that um, we're not for everyone and everyone's not for us. And, and that's fine. But I think I think our value proposition is is very compelling. Andrew, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of selling practice, in terms of thinking about what to think about with partnerships and to whom you're selling and getting things in order for due diligence all the way down to how we would value our practices. How would you want to conclude with whether it's private equity or high net worth individuals or the, the money coming into the field or the trade-offs between, between selling and keeping or the philosophy and entrepreneurship, any of these multitude of threads that you and I have touched on today, I'm going to let you conclude however you want to put the bow on it. Oh, well, thanks. First of all, thank you very much for this opportunity. I think that, you know, this service that you provide in this great dynamic profession is, is really valuable, Griffin. So thank you and keep, keep it up. I guess in terms of concluding, and I, I was sort of brought in under the private equity bucket, I guess. So um, I would conclude that there are tremendous opportunities out there to to partner with various organizations if it if it suits you. And uh, I think it's just really important to have your house in order before entering into that. Do your due diligence, find the right fit, and. Look, this this profession right now is an incredibly is that an inflection point. It it is changing, and if you want to change, you might look to join an organization that aligns with your values, and they can help you. They could support you to implement changes in your clinic, to drive patient flow, to to make your life easier, so you can provide the best possible medicine. Dr. Andrew Meikle from the Fertility Partners, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks again, Griffin. See you soon.
You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.